Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts. I'm here with my friend Brandon Vermes. Hi there. This is one of our other five Peril of Path episodes, and I know it's been a few months since I have done any recordings due to my chiefing and uh, chiefing responsibilities. So I'm very excited to be behind the mic and uh, get this ball rolling again. So today we are going to talk about OKC, and uh, you definitely, definitely going to see these lesions multiple times in your residency and throughout your career. So knowing the facts about it helps out to feel very smart about it. So about OKC. Brandon, I feel like OKC is one of those lesions that had so many names, so many different names. Yeah, you know, odontogenic keratocysts um, have kind of swapped back and forth between, like, you know, keratocystic odontogenic tumor and odontogenic keratocyst. Um, in the most recent edition of the WHO classification of head and neck tumors, um, they say, uh, and I quote, Uh, It was concluded that most cases of KCOT and OKC behave clinically as non-neoplastic lesions and are treated as cysts. Therefore, there is consensus that they should be reclassified as OKC um, and COC, respectively, because they also um, uh, changed calcifying cystic adonogenic tumor to calcifying adonogenic cyst, um, respectively, until there is more definite evidence for classifying them as KCOT and CCOT, thus reintroducing the time-honored names in use before labeling as tumors in the previous classification. So in other words, they had these as tumors in the third edition released in 2005. Now, um, adonogenic keratocyst and um, calcifying adonogenic cyst are back to being regular old cysts. So today we are going to go over five pearls about OKC. And uh, we have a lot of developmental odontogenic cysts, and these cysts oftentimes share some common behaviors that can be applied for other cysts as well. Part of these behaviors that we often see to be shared among these cysts is that the residual developmental odontogenic epithelial cell gets stimulated and that leads to proliferation of the cyst. That's right. And the, um, you know, which particular, you know, uh, adonogenic epithelial cell, um, as, as far as I know, is largely irrelevant. Um, but there are some theories for different kinds of adonogenic cysts and neoplasms that are the um, theoretical originating uh, adonogenic cell. And when it comes to the clinical presentation and our thought process about how the how these cysts behave, the question that comes to my mind is how do they create bone resorption? And theoretically, theoretically, in most cysts, especially dentigerous and radicular cysts, the epithelial cell disquamate into the lumen, which increases the protein content of the lumen and make it hypertonic which encourages fluid to come inside the lumen. This change in the hydrostatic pressure may then cause bone resorption, clinical expansion, and sometimes mild paresthesia or pain. And cyst lining continues to produce this fluid and grows until it is removed or marsupialized. Okay, so 
you know, as you know, some of the pathology books out there may contradict themselves, uh, but we're going to stick with some of the well-known ones. Like, we're going to stick with some of the more known ones, like Neville. So according to Neville's Oral and Maxillofacial Pathology textbook, OKCs, do not appear to grow as a result of osmotic pressure like dentigerous or radicular cysts. Brandon is tilting his head, which tells me, does he agree with this sentence? <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, no, that's correct. Um, you know, we're not totally sure uh, the, what causes the growth potential for adonogenic keratocysts. Um, perhaps it's because of something in the epithelium, maybe because of enzymatic activity in the fibrous wall. Um, overall, it's unclear. We need more and better research. Always. Always. So what is the first peril of this episode? Drum roll, please. Well, the first one is that um, most uh, um, adonogenic keratocysts arise from the dental lamina. And the dental lamina, uh, as a refresher, is that little bit of epithelium uh, in the developing oral cavity that kind of peels off of the um, ectoderm and involutes in order to start forming the tooth bud. So it doesn't really become anything in its adulthood. It's part of the development of tooth bud at some point, and uh, it kind of yeah. Eventually, it it kind of like disappears. Uh, it might um, become like smaller adonogenic rests in the area. So the dental lamina, if it gets stimulated by something and it pr- proliferates, then it could become a, an OKC. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Clinical presentation, it doesn't really have a distinguishing clinical feature. Um, When it comes to the clinical presentation of the OKC, it doesn't really have a distinguishing clinical feature. So anything that you see for other cysts kind of applies here. uh, They could be multilocular, they could be monolocular, they could be small, they could be large. And um, if we had to guess the cyst behavior, do you think that the cyst typically expands more anterior posteriorly or buccolingually? If you had guessed anterior posterior, you're correct, because the intermodulary trabecular bone is faster observed by the cyst than the cortex and the inferior border. So the cyst typically expands more in the anterior posterior than the buccolingual. And that brings us to the second peril about OKC, that it does not invade the nerve or periosteum. Knowing this fact of OKC pathology is key when it comes to its treatment. And why is that? Because if it was invading the nerve, then you would feel like you have to cut the nerve or, you know, sacrifice the nerve for it. But because it doesn't invade the nerve, you could easily, you know, keep your inferior alveolar nerve if it's in your mandible and uh, keep it intact. So let's move on to the differential diagnosis of OKC. Clinically speaking, OKC can show up in a variety of sizes and situation, which is why your differential diagnosis will vary based on location and size. If the cyst is located in the anterior region of the jaw, you're going to think about adenomatoid odontogenic cysts on, on top of your list, as well as then amyloblastoma and amyloblastic fibroma. 
Another thing you might consider as well is, you know, if it's at the apex of a tooth, obviously you're going to think about, you know, potentially ridiculous cyst. If it's associated with an impacted tooth, uh, you might consider a dentigerous cyst. As well. Yeah, those are good points, Brandon. So now if you have a cyst between two premolars, then your differential diagnosis should also include the lateral periodontal cyst as well as the residual cyst. Lastly, if you have a multilocular radiolucency not associated with a tooth, we cannot include the cyst into our differential diagnosis. But instead, our differential diagnosis will be amyloblastoma, odontogenic myxoma, and the central giant cell granuloma. We can also include vascular neoplasm, like hemangioma or vascular malformation. Now, quick pop quiz. What, what's, the, uh, what's, the, um, what's the mnemonic for multilocular radiolucencies? This is very easy for me because I have been thought better by Brandon than this. It's macho. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Ooh, yeah. Let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> that way you won't ever forget your differential diagnosis for multilocular radiolucency. Myxoma, amyloblastoma. Mm-hmm. What is C? Central giant cell granuloma. What is H? Uh, hemangioma, kind of expanded to include other vascular neoplasms as well, and but um, we've we've sort of been splitting the vascular neoplasms between hemangioma and other vascular malformations over time. That's for another episode. That's a yes. whole other conversation. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. And O for OKC. Mm-hmm. So another question for all of you guys, super nerdy friends and listeners is what is the differential diagnosis for a small multilocular lesion between premolar or canine on top of everything else that we already said as part of our differential diagnosis what you got brandon i don't know how much time we're supposed to give them (laughs) seven seconds according according to my time with teaching at kaplan they told me seriously give a student seven seconds really yeah nice yeah well, we'd also include a botryoid adonogenic cyst, which is a, um, a clinical variant of which other cyst? I don't know. Ah, lateral periodontal cyst. Oh, interesting. They're basically the same thing. It's just one's multilocular and it's in these tiny little um, smaller cysts instead of one large one. Oh, okay. Good. Good. Brandon, can you uncode the 50 shade of purple of OKC, aka is histology? Oh, you bet I can. So the adenogenic keratocyst is uh, lined by stratified squamous epithelium. Uh, it lacks reedy ridges, so the epithelial connective tissue interface is flat. The epithelium will show basal or palisading. Um, that means like uh, it's lined up at the basement layer. And it's also going to have parakeratin at the surface. What does it mean when you say parakeratin, Brandon? So parakeratin uh, contains carat- um, keratinocyte nuclei, whereas in contrast, a orthokeratin does not. So adonogenic keratinocysts can have foci of orthokeratin as well. Um, but if it's a lesion that's composed completely of orthokeratin, you're going to be thinking of a um, orthokeratinizing adonogenic cyst instead. Very, very good point. So the histology of OKC was our third pearl of this episode and you know classically I have heard this a lot from my attendings or my 
um, co-residents, when it comes to the cheesy fluid that's uh, sometimes expected. So Brandon, can you break that down for us? Do all OKC have cheesy fluid in their lumen? No. Um, so, you know, the amount of keratin in the lumen will vary from cyst to cyst. Uh, some OKCs will have clear fluid instead. Uh, but it's like one of those things where, you know, when you're after you've taken out the cyst and you notice some cheesy stuff in it, it's, it's a nice thing to kind of support a diagnosis of OKC, but it's nice to get it checked out under a scope. As always. OKC is not mediated by an inflammatory process, so the wall is not generally inflamed. However, secondary inflammation such as rupture of the cyst lining and extravasation of keratin into the cyst wall is uh, often present. In that case, the OKC can lose their characteristic histological feature. This is important because an incisional biopsy with only inflamed area probably won't be recognized as an OKC. And this means that the pathologist might find some rare features that aren't quite diagnostic but are suggestive of OKC, and that will be something that they will note in the comment. Yeah, this actually happens, um, you know, not all the time, but uh, it's something that, you know, as a surgeon, I, I, you know, us pathologists recognize that you want like a nice, solid, hard diagnosis that you can use uh, to manage treatment. But there are genuinely some cases where, you know, we'll have these features, but it's all inflamed. So we'll say like, you know, there's some stuff here, but, you know, we've sliced through the paraffin. We can't find anything, uh, you know, 100% like simple diagnosis of an OKC, and we'll note that in a comment for you. My least favorite one is when there's a giant cyst and I give them a very nice slices and I like get a cyst of maxilla. I'm like, yeah, sorry. tell me more. Tell me <laughs> more. It happens. <laughs> okay, let's move on to treatment of OKC, which is just like its name, has had its long journey. Many treatment modalities, ranging from simple enucleation to resection, have been tried with this lesion in order to kind of combat its uh, reputation for recurrence. According to Marx, resection should be reserved for only two incidences. One, when there have been multiple recurrence after enucleation and cortage procedure. And two, in case of a very large multilocular keratocyst in which an enucleation and curatage procedure will result in a nearly continuity loss by itself. Similarly, Marx encourages the two most common for re recurrence is failure to remove all the original cyst lining within bone and or new primary cyst formation from additional activated rests or oral basal epithelium if you did not remove all of the cyst lining then you should expect a recurrence within 18 months if you say so <laughs> mark you're, you're, says so you're, you're you're getting into surgery this is um Here's my wheelhouse. Um, you're over here right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a lot of surgeons have had a lot to say about the best treatment for OKC, but um, 
This is coming uh, from uh, Dr. Marx. If you give yourself a large access for enucleation and curtage and uh, removing the cyst in one unit, then theoretically you will decrease the chance of recurrence. Kind of going back to what we initially mentioned about pathology of OKC, Again, OKC does not invade your perineum or periosteum, so inferior alveolar nerve should be preserved, and dissection can be at the subperiosteal plane. There are two things, uh, two points of discussion that uh, oftentimes comes up with OKC, and uh, it will not be completed without mentioning them. One of them is the Caranois solution. Caranois solution is a fixative composed of uh, originally 60% ethanol, 30% chloroform, and 10% glacial acidic acid, and one gram of ferric, uh, ferric chloride. And a lot of surgeons use it routinely in chemical cortage uh, of OKC. But um, A, FDA uh, has not, is not approving the Caranois solution with the chloroform anymore. So on top of that, just coronary solution, even it's in its own original formula, does um, it lacks control of precise depth of effect. And uh, so therefore, you know, it's one of those things that some people really believe in it and some people don't think it uh, is that effective, especially in the new version of it uh, that doesn't have the chloroform. Why did they, uh, why did they take out the chloroform? They were saying it could cause cancer. That's a bummer. It certainly is. Huh. They they have a new uh, they have a new chemical that people mm-hmm. are using five uh, mm-hmm. fu. There are some studies coming out about the using of that agent, but um, there isn't enough evidence behind it for us to present it mm. for you guys. But definitely something that people are starting to use more. Oh yeah. Okay. So the fourth pearl about OKC is that. We need more prospective coherent studies in order to come up with some consensus regarding what should we do with this cyst. People don't agree. No talk on OKCs completed also without mentioning the nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome, aka gorlin goltz syndrome. Brandon, um, tell us about your experience of going to Dr. Gorlin's house. What? Didn't you go to his house? Uh, I don't think so. He lied to me. <laughs> lied. What? I never went to the man's house. Well, I think he's been dead for forever. But didn't you say his family has like this trip? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing they used to do in oral pathology is um, we used to have a uh, the so-called Gorlin conference mm-hmm. where um, they had a fund set up to send every oral path resident in the country over to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. And so we would have like a weekend conference there and we'd watch like recorded lectures from Gorlin himself. Mm-hmm. His family would say a few words, but I did not go into the man's place House. of residence. Oh, so that was like at residence of his nerding. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I see. So, yeah, like, went, went to the university at which he practiced. Yeah. Very, very interesting guy, Dr. Yes, Gorlin. Yes, correct. About that later on, if you guys can request the special episode about Dr. Gorlin's history. Very fascinating. Yeah. 
Okay, so going back to nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome, things to know about this syndrome, trust me, you will see this at least once in your career. Uh, it brings us to the fifth pearl about OKC and its associated gene mutation in nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome, which is the patch one gene mutation on chromosome nine, which is an autosomal dominant with high penetrase and variable expressivity. What does that mean, Brandon? Can you break this down? So yeah, um, so autosomal dominant means that you know you only need one copy of the mutated gene in order to have the syndrome. Um, high penetrance means that um, you know if you have a mutated copy, uh, there is a very high chance that you're going to have symptoms. And variable expressivity means that um, you know if you know you have one patient with the same mutation as another patient, um, they may have very different effects of the syndrome from each other. So there's a wide spectrum, and we are kind of oversimplifying just saying patch one gene mutation because there are a lot of other gene mutation that could cause the same syndrome. And there are constantly new novel genes that are becoming associated with this syndrome. But patch one gene activates the sonic hedgehog signaling pathway, which participates in the cell proliferation. Cell uh, proliferation. Originally, this was described, of course, by Gorlin and Golds as a triad of multiple basal cell carcinoma odontogenic keratocysts, and skeletal anomalies. So um, one thing that I like always like to note about uh, the syndrome is that the um, OKCs that you see uh, in uh, navoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome, uh, they're histologically indistinguishable from sporadic odontogenic keratocysts. So some people suggest that there are some like subtle differences, like, you know, um, you might have more satellite cysts, maybe more of a solid appearance, um, maybe some more calcifications in these syndromic OKCs, but you can see any one of these features in a sporadic OKC. So rather than trying to distinguish um, or diagnose this syndrome based just on the histologic features of the OKC, um, looking at the overall clinical picture is really important. So that includes um, having OKCs often multiple before the age of 20. Um, um, you know, things like that are far more important um, than trying to divine something from the histologic features. And as Brandon alluded to it, there are clinical presentation that kind of hints us for the syndrome and those are considered some of them are diagnostic criteria which allow for the diagnosis if there are two major criteria one major and two minor criteria and or if you have a major criteria like an OKC and you have a higher suspicion and send your patient for genetic testing and you get the genetic confirmation for patch one gene mutation or another mutation that is known to be associated with this syndrome, that also confirms your diagnosis for basal cell, um, nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome. So let's go over major criteria. This is by no means meant to be a way for you guys to remember them, but just a refresher. Try to think about the ones that you remember under the major criteria and see, um, fill out your knowledge gap. 
Major criteria includes uh, five basal cell carcinoma or one before age 30, any number of OKCs, two palmer or plantar pits, and having a first degree relative with the syndromes. And there is one more major criteria. What is that, Brandon? Lamellar calcification of the Falk cerebri. What is Falk cerebri? Refresh us. So the Falk cerebri is um, it's, it's this little layer of dura mater um, that separates the two brain hemispheres. And so if you take like um, an anterior posterior um, uh, film, you can actually see calcification at the midline. Okay. Thank you about that. Thanks for that. Their workup. Minor criteria constantly is evolving and people try to add stuff to it. Uh, one of them is medulloblastoma. A consensus group gave consideration for making this a major criteria because the concern is that when medulloblastoma are treated by radiotherapy, a patient might incidentally develop basal cell carcinoma. And this would uh, be two major criteria, and these patients would then, uh, by error, uh, become diagnosis um, with basal, nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome. One potential solution to prevent decreasing the specificity of the inclusion criteria would be to include a caveat for including basal cell carcinoma as a major criteria if the patient was not exposed for radiation treatment. So keep that in mind in obtaining history if you get um, excited about finding a patient that experiencing a nevoid basal cell carcinoma syndrome uh, as far as making sure that those two don't coincide. And the other, micro, uh, other minor criteria is macrocephaly, other uh, congenital malformation like, uh, such as cliff lip, palate, frontal bossing, hypertellurism uh, are among the minor criteria as well as bifep or extra rep or vertebral abnormalities. So again, this by no means mean to be in a uh, way for you guys to remember them. It's hard to use listening as a way of uh, remembering lists, but just a refresher for things to keep in mind. So let's wrap up this episode by going over some of the things we want you guys to really take away. OKC most likely originates from dental lamina. It does not invade the nerve or periosteum. OKC is lined by stratified squamous epithelium that lacks rate ridges so that epithelial connective tissue interface is flat. And epithelium shows a basilar palisading lined up at the base, basement layer and para-keratin at the surface. And don't forget that OKC can be associated with uh, gene mutations and other clinical presentation that could uh, give away some that a patient is experiencing nevoid basal cell carcinoma. An early diagnosis of these patients is critical because then they could take extra measures to prevent getting basal cell carcinoma, which could be really devastating for these patients. Okay, so that's about it. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us. You're so very welcome. Until next time, goodbye.